0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. President Trump made a military threat to Iran with his all-caps tweet to Iran's president. He threatened consequences the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered before. Meanwhile, on Sunday, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo outlined a political and economic maximum pressure campaign to collapse Iran's government. With me to talk about U.S. policy towards Iran is Matteo Farzaneh. He's an associate professor at Northeastern University, and he's principal with the Mossadegh Initiative at Northeastern that recalls the legacy of Iran's former prime minister. Good to see you, Matteo. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. First of all, I think people have had twenty four hours to digest the president 's all caps tweet, which um, seems to to have landed pretty hard on a lot of people they looked at and said, "Wow, all caps, this is a big deal he 's going to um, you know he wants military action against iran he 's making military threats against Iran, but on the other hand, after twenty four hours most people are saying, "Well, that was bluster it 's not really uh, happening. He did it to change." The topic from Russia. Um, this is no different than all the other. Even Iran's foreign minister said that this is no different than other threats that we've been having for years with the U.S., it's just a little less, more crude. Uh, how do you digest what happened there yesterday?
1: Well, I agree with all of the above. Uh, color us uh, unimpressed, I think that's what uh, right. Dr. <laughs> Zarif said, and I agree with that. Um, it is bluster. Uh, he did that with North Korea. Uh, Fire and fury, we heard that in the cabinet room uh, several months ago. And uh, what happened? Uh, In a short period, you know, they went hugging. Uh, with uh, Kim Jong-un. So I do not see this as a major threat. I do see it as a major threat in a way that he is working uh, uh, the grounds basically to initiate the sanctions or put back the sanctions in place, which is going to really hurt a lot of Iranians that have nothing to do with this war between uh, the two governments.
0: What do you make of the people who say that he is going about this with a North Korea-like a strategy where he wants Iran to go and have talks and capitulate to his uh, full court press and then everything will
1: be fine. Do you think he wants talks? In an op-ed, Max Boot, several years ago, when the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement thing was going on, he was one of the biggest uh, uh, opponents to the deal. And the title of his op-ed was "Why Worry?" something to the effect of, why worry about Iran, think North Korea? I'm a history teacher, and everything we look at in history is in the context of one region or one country's historical background. Iran is not North Korea. North Korea's decisions are made by one person and the cabal of people around him. And we know about that. North Korea is very different from Iran. Iran still, for better or for worse, still has a quasi sort of a democratic system where people still vote. That's what happened last year. The overwhelming majority of people voted for Hassan Rouhani who is in power now uh, in his second term. So we cannot really make that comparison. What I say, If I was the Iranian foreign minister or anybody in that decision-making power uh, uh, position, I would just call Trump and say, let's make a deal and bring out every single article verbatim of the JCPOA that was signed in 2015, put it in front of him, and he would sign it, and he would wear his red tie, and he's going to be very happy that he made the deal and not Barack Obama. (laughs) All
0: right. You would just uh, (laughs) redo the deal with the deal. Yes, uh, okay uh, <laughs> now it's what's, what about the Iranian strategy here because uh the iran's president came out with this mother of all wars quote and we don't read Persian. Uh, I mean, it was a little more elaborate than that, from what I understood. But why does Iran come out and say, "Well, we're going to have, um, you know, we're going to cut off the Straits of Hormuz. We're going to do military things. We're going to—they do the bluster too.
1: They do. And the reason why Hassan Rouhani has been more vociferous lately is because there is a coming together. I see uh, domestically in Iran. There is a coming together of the factions that wasn't the possibility before Trump uh, was voted in and several months ago. Now uh, the uh, house of the leadership, uh, Ayatollah Khamenei, and the voice of the Iranian president seem to be saying the same thing. And the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the Sephardi Pastaran, is absolutely enjoying all of this because this is the way they talk. This is the way they operate. And I think The stuff that Trump has been doing to weaken, to actually cancel the agreement uh, unilaterally has emboldened uh, conservatives and, you know, uh, softliners, if you want to call them, come together inside Iran. And this is the result of that. Well, what's the point of
0: blustering the U.S. if Iran doesn't, you know, really have a navy to speak of? How do you – and the U.S. has sunk Iranian boats there before – this is uh, easy pickings for the U.S., any kind of military confrontation. Why even
1: go bluffing? Uh, it's, it's not so much bluffing it, I think. Uh, there was a tweet by uh, Mohsen rezai who was the commander of the Revolutionary Guards during the Iran-Iraq War from 1980 to 1988. He's a celebrated uh, uh, hero for a variety of reasons, uh, as one of the commanders, uh, effective commanders of the Revolution Guard. And we can discuss that all the time. There are different perspectives about him and his actions. The uh, tweet was very interesting, and I uh, read it several times to kind of uh, 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 digest what he's saying. He said, If I were Trump or something to that effect, if I were Trump, I wouldn't make that kind of bluster because he doesn't know we have 50,000 American souls under our knives ready to go. What did that mean? That means that we're going to raise havoc inside Afghanistan, inside Iraq, inside Syria, and maybe in Israel too. Is that that mostly an Iraq quote, do you think? Uh, Is he mostly
0: aiming at uh, U.S. troops in Iraq? Most probably. Uh, That is an interesting little thing. Mm -hmm. So um, I wanted to talk with you. And by the way, I'm talking with Matteo Farzaneh from Northeastern University about U.S. policy towards Iran. In a few minutes, we're going to be hearing about the influence of Pakistan's military in tomorrow's elections there in Pakistan. Um, Matteo, on the more substantive policy level, the speech uh, by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on Sunday was uh, pretty interesting and really maybe a better reflection than the president's tweets of of what U.S. strategy is going forward. And we, I wanted to play a few clips uh, from Mike Pompeo and get your reaction to uh, what he said in the speech. But um, the U.S. is doing something called maximum pressure, and they really want – Uh, to put maximum pressure and institute a collapse in Iran. Uh, What do you think about that?
1: Well, um, I did not listen. I read the uh, text of uh, Secretary Pompeo's uh, remarks. Uh, The stuff that he pointed out, one thing that uh, I think the crowd kind of liked was uh, the amount of money, the amount of riches – that the uh, hardliners and people in power have iran have accrued over the years uh, that's no news for any iranian i mean uh, with the with the invention of the internet and you know Uh, Twitter and all sorts of other social media outlets Uh, people have been discussing these things, Uh, June Torbati with uh, Reuters, who's a very good friend of ours uh, had a big article about uh, one of the institutions that Ayatollah Khamenei actually controls, which is the Setadeh Komal Kaye Imam, something to that effect which is a sort of a charity organization, is a charity foundation that has arms inside Syria, inside Lebanon, with about hundred billion dollars worth of money in it. So for Iranians, that's nothing new. And one thing that I also read in Iranian uh, media was uh, just like Americans don't have a lot of money and they don't uh, uh, kind of take the money that belongs to the people in a variety of ways, such as the tax cuts. So they had a response to that. They didn't deny it so much as say, you know, this is the way things go.
0: Uh, Well, let's hear some of the things that Mike Pompeo had to say. And in this first clip, he, he talks um, about the, the, the money issue that you're referring to. The, the regime's brutal response to these peaceful protests reflects the intolerance that its revolutionary worldview has produced. Last January, the regime welcomed in the new year with the arrest of up to 5,000 of its own people. They were peacefully calling for a better life. Hundreds reportedly remained behind bars and several are dead at the hands of their own government. The leaders cynically call it suicide. And that was uh, a different clip. It was him talking about the uh, the kind of why Iran is a bad country to its own people, which is another point in his argument. That's
1: that's no news. I mean, (laughs) uh, it's like, okay. Uh, we've been studying Iran. We've been looking at what's happening in Iran. We know about the elections of 2009, uh, the, you know, the second term uh, that Ahmadinejad got elected. We know about what was happening in December of last year, early January this year. All of that everybody knows about. And there's nothing new about that. Same thing happens in Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia happens to be our ally. So that was – I mean the whole thing was pretty unimpressive with ex- exception of you know one point which came at the end of his talk. We can talk about that later. Do you get the feeling that he is
0: building a case for war or that he is really intent on regime collapse with this kind of thing?
1: He thinks that he's exposing the government where if you know Iran – You know that Iran has been exposed for years. This is nothing new. I think that comes out of the inexperience of the foreign policy establishment. In the current administration, they think people don't know these things or they can get them excited over these things. These things don't matter anymore. What it matters is that the United States has not done a very good job of uh, getting things together inside Iraq and Afghanistan after killing hundreds of thousands of people. People know that inside Iran. But that's not to say that some Iranians inside Iran don't want the Americans to come and help out. And those are the Iranians that don't know anything about the U.S.-Iran relations or they don't care to actually remember it maybe out of frustration.
0: Who is the opposition in Iran right now? I mean we've seen the – Um, Mujahideen Kulk conferences with John Bolton at them and and many and uh, we had Rudy Giuliani at the last one recently. A lot of Trump allies uh, seem to look at this organization as the viable thing that is going to help them undermine the regime there.
1: The MEK, as you say, uh, Mujahideen al-Khalq or the Mujahideen of the people or the masses, uh, they do not have – there's been several studies and when I go to Iran, I talk to a lot of people because that's what I do for for my own uh, research. There is not a single person that I've met that openly or privately has said that they would go along with something like a M.E.K., sort of a supported regime. They do not have popular support. The simple reason for that is during the Iran-Iraq war – the MEK leadership and some of these members went to Iraq, sided with Iraq, with Saddam Hussein. They shook hands and hugged. And at the, uh, the very last day after the ceasefire was announced in July of 1988, uh, uh, the Mujahideen Khalq, along with the Iraqi army, violated the ceasefire. They attacked the Iranian territories. They killed Iranians, and that was a huge blow to a possibility of maybe forgiveness on the side of the Iranians. And Iran, uh, um, under the orders of Ayatollah Khomeini, lashed out and killed several thousand of their membership inside their jails.
0: Why do you think they retain popularity within the Washington establishment? And the former uh, Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper was at their recent event, uh, but they, they seem to keep uh, a great degree of clout in the West.
1: Some of the listeners might not know that MEK was a recognized terrorist organization in 1974 when they killed four uh, military attaches, American military attaches to the embassy, the US embassy in Iran. From since then, they've been deemed a terrorist organization. They were a terrorist organization until uh, George W. Bush came to power and after the Iraqi invasion, American-led Iraqi invasion occupation. They had a camp inside Iraq, outside of Baghdad with about five to 7,000 members. And what happened was, uh, Somehow they got out of the terrorist list first in EU and then in the United States. And I don't have any evidence. I haven't seen anything. But I think there are state players at hand uh, with big money and with big influence in Congress that are uh, funneling money through their fundraising efforts inside the United States.
0: Um, I wanted to get back
1: to uh, Mike Pompeo and
0: his strategy with uh, the United States. And he did have a uh, a kind of a list of grievances that the U.S. has with uh, the Iranian government. Um, And here he is talking about exporting how he doesn't like how Iran exports its revolution. The Ayatollahs are in on the act too. Judging by their vast wealth, they seem more concerned with riches than religion. These hypocritical holy men have devised all kinds of crooked schemes to become some of the wealthiest men on earth while their people suffer. The level of corruption and wealth among Iranian leaders shows that Iran is run by something that resembles the mafia
1: more than a government.
0: All right, and there's the mafia clip we <laughs> wanted earlier. Uh, uh, sure, they've got
1: money. I mean, th- that's nothing new. I think we already talked about that. Yeah, and
0: they're um, exporting the revolution is... Nothing new either. I it's, mean they have relationships with course, Hezbollah and all these organizations.
1: Of course, Iran historically has had interest to expand its power in the Middle East. This goes back to pre-Islamic era of 5th century. So this is nothing new. Uh, um, the idea of exporting revolution was something that Ayatollah Khomeini talked about. Uh, right before the revolution succeeded or the toppling of the Pahlavi regime in 1979 and afterwards. Uh, yes, Iran uh, is interested in making the Shiite-majority countries similar to its own uh, uh, governmental system, a theocratic an Islamic republic, and they've done some really interesting uh, um, stuff in uh, sub-Saharan Africa in Nigeria with promotion of Shi'ism, political Shi'ism there and in other places in Africa and other places in the world. So he's right about that. But um, do we really care about what they export? If it was to our interest, I don't think he would have mentioned that. Uh,
0: Where do you think this is all going with uh, U.S. and Iran? uh, Can the U.S. just um – keep up this maximum pressure thing throughout the Trump administration and and just kind of um, let it
1: ride? Well, the only thing that's going to happen, I see, is that the sanctions are going to be put back on. Oil is going to be uh, uh, one of the things that's going to create a major major economic uh, situation in Iran that's going to come in November 3rd or November 4th which, by the way, is the anniversary of the storming of the Uh, U.S. Embassy in Tehran. I think that's why they chose that date. Uh, And that's just going to hurt a lot of people inside Iran. Iran will survive, however. I think Islamic Republic will survive. Uh, They are preparing for the worst case scenario. This had not been seen before. I'm seeing videos and tweets and articles of uh, uh, various cabinet level uh, ministers that are actually talking about what they're doing right now to make sure that if there is a full on sanction, uh, what they intend to do to lessen the effect of it on uh, the average Iranian person. Matteo
0: Farzaneh is with Northeastern University. He's the principal of their Mossadegh initiative there. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about what's happening with the U.S. and Iran. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about Pakistan's parliamentary elections. there tomorrow. And we'll find out how Pakistan's military influences the country's fragile democracy. I'm Jarrell McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. Pakistan goes for its second democratic transfer of power in a row tomorrow, but the process hasn't exactly been encouraging. Lots of observers and candidates are calling it a soft coup for the military. With me is Akeel Shah. He's assistant professor of South Asian Studies at the University of Oklahoma. He's the author of the book, The Army and Democracy, Military Politics in Pakistan. Thanks for joining us, Akeel.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me, Jerome.
0: You know, I was not paying super close attention to the uh, campaign in Pakistan over recent weeks. But last night in brushing up for the interview, I was going over all the many instances of the way that it seems the military has been putting its finger on the scales in this election. And I wonder if you could just um, give listeners an idea of the kind of things that have been happening in addition to jailing the former prime minister and um, abductions. There's been all sorts of things going on
2: yeah so the military figured out a systematic campaign primarily to keep uh, the former prime ministers now in jail out of power uh, so this has included uh, harassment intimidation coercion of his party's candidates in the election and
0: this is Nawaz sharif Pressure,
2: Nawaz sharif yes pressuring them to either switch to the pakistan e saf the pakistan justice party the favored uh, pro-military uh, party headed by imran khan Um, or to uh, contest as independent candidates. The other thing they've done is they have encouraged and um, Islamist militants to actually uh, contest in elections as uh, viable, moderate, peaceful political candidates. So on the one hand, they're mainstreaming these militant Islamists. On the other, they're trying to squeeze out uh, more moderate, Uh, democratic forces like the Sharif's PMLN and even the Pakistan People's Party while uh, colluding with Imran Khan to make sure that there's a government that comes to power that's pliable, that doesn't challenge the power of the military over Pakistan's national security policies and domestic politics.
0: Why is this a good bet for the military? uh, When it is allowing um, groups that have been banned and are deemed uh, not legitimate political parties to rename themselves and run in the election. How does that um, pass in, insert themselves into uh, politics? How does that help the military?
2: Well, I think the military uh, high command believes that the one way to shield these militant groups that they consider to be the good militants or good Taliban that helped the Pakistan military fight a proxy war in Indian Kashmir and in Afghanistan uh, is to kind of bring them into mainstream politics, to shield them from coercion, and on the other hand, to kind of divide the the right-of-center vote that traditionally goes to Nawaz Sharif's PMLN, uh, Pakistan Muslim League, is to divide that vote, but also to kind of uh, tell the world, well, look, these guys are peaceful, they're contesting elections, they're no longer militants. Uh, so it's kind of a two-pronged strategy um, that they're working on.
0: Um, I wanted to ask a question about Imran Khan yeah, and why yeah. he is the favored candidate of the military and what he stands for this, these days.
2: Well, it's. I think it would be better to kind of describe it as uh, Imran Khan as somebody that has played up uh, the role of a proxy or puppet for the military uh, and Imran Khan sees his rise to power primarily through the uh, the uh, help of the military. The Pakistani army believes that it'll um, the only palatable candidate or viable mainstream candidate uh, is Imran Khan, and their main aim is to keep Sharif out of power, to keep his party out of power. It's important to remember that Sharif has run afoul of the military because he has challenged their ties to Islamist militants. He has tried to broker peace with India, and he also initiated uh, treason proceedings against former army chief of staff and president coup maker General Pervez Musharraf. So that's why uh, the military has targeted and his party, uh, and they see Imran Khan as a kind of popular, more reliable candidate um, who has so far not challenged any of the military's interference, has actually uh, supported most of their policies and has kind of played a second fill to the military. So he, he suits the military because they think one uh, the government that will come to power uh, will not hopefully not be a kind of super majority. And the Imran Khan, if the PTI were to manage a kind of uh, a majority, a thin majority, that he would enter a coalition with other right-wing parties and that would create a kind of divided coalition government that would be unable to challenge uh, the military. Imran Khan stands for all kinds of uh, extremist uh, tendencies. He has these kind of really uh, impractical um, um, uh, reformist agenda. He claims he can eliminate corruption in 90 days. Uh, public uh, sector corruption. Ninety days, but he's also um, kind of uh, sucked up to the extremists, the Islamist militants, and Taliban. He thinks the Taliban are waging a legitimate war against the internationally recognized government in in Kabul, in Afghanistan. He has um, the Taliban have, the Pakistani group of Taliban have actually come out and said we accept him as our um, as our um, we will accept him as our prime minister because we has uh, he he uh, he's a. He's the right candidate for us because he's made all the right noises and he's exploiting religion um, and uh, Pakistan's blasphemy laws specifically to kind of uh, rope in the religious right.
0: I'm talking about Pakistan's elections tomorrow with Akhil Shah from the University of Oklahoma. Coming up in a few minutes, we're going to continue our World Without series and we're going to talk about the global sand shortage um, I wanted to say something else about Imran Khan. He's such an interesting uh, character. He is someone who is a former cricket star. He yeah. has this cosmopolitan reputation. He was married to a British heiress. He's yeah. you know he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would embody the <laughs> the kind of policies and support a blasphemy law in Pakistan, it's kind of like, in a way, it's like Donald Trump, and he has, who doesn't seem like a likely candidate to be yeah. supported by religious conservatives in this country. But he's got all that kind of thing going on there.
2: Yeah, over the years, I think he's had a conversion. So he's a kind of, uh, what is it, a newborn again uh, Muslim. Uh, and he does espouse very conservative extremist uh, views, even in his own life. His current wife, is a religious preacher. She covers herself from head to toe. He's talked about a dress code for women. So he's kind of uh, trying to uh, distance himself from his background and appears to be a kind of, or at least uh, wants to create the perception that he's a practicing good Muslim uh, who respects uh, Islamic laws. He said that no law against Islamic Sharia will be made in the country. Uh, So he's kind of trying to tap into the right-wing conservative vote. But his personal life is also... Uh, taken a turn um, towards a more kind of extremist um, conservative view of social life and politics. He has called feminism a curse for women. And so he has these very kind of male chauvinistic male conservative uh, ideas about uh, women, about uh, religion uh, and politics in Pakistan.
0: Now, the polls that i've seen for what they're yeah. worth uh seem to describe a neck and neck race between his party and the nawaz sharif muslim league party and uh what happens if imran khan wins here can the can the M- pakistan muslim league uh, accept that because they've had such a tilted playing field. Nobody's getting on television. Uh, no, no, there's yeah. no news about them on television. Uh, how, do, how do they handle it if Imran uh, yeah.
2: comes? So yeah, there will be serious questions of legitimacy around this election. Uh, as you mentioned, there has been serious political censorship of newspapers and news channels. Uh, there's been completely one-sided coverage of PTI as if no other party is running. Uh, and victimization of the PMLN. So yes, there were the millions of supporters uh, of the Sharif party and others in civil society are going to question this government's legitimacy, and that, that I think is going to be a question that Imran Khan will have to kind of tackle with if he becomes the prime minister. Um, so there'll be serious questions of uh, uh, the, the Independent Human Rights Commission of Pakistan has called this the most micromanaged uh, rigged election in even in Pakistan's history which is saying a lot, given that Pakistan has a checkered history with electoral politics. Uh, so even if he wins, um, there will be serious questions about the credibility and legitimacy of any government um, that comes to power, the, the Imran Khan as its head.
0: Uh, what should U.S. policy be towards Pakistan if, um, if Imran Khan comes to power? What, how does the U.S. policy change?
2: I have not really, I've been really disappointed by the complete, um, it's eerie silence of the international community as a whole, uh, and the US in particular, about the manipulation and rigging of the election that's going on. I don't think pa- the pa- Pakistani, pa- US foreign, uh, US Pakistan relations will change drastically if Imran Khan came to power, even though his rhetoric has been virulently anti American, and he's used that as a platform in uh, kind of reviving his political career because the strategic and security policies are still controlled by the Pakistani military. Now, what could happen is that Imran Khan can kind of keep up the rhetoric, anti-American rhetoric, and give the military more leeway or leverage with, US, uh, with the United States in the sense that they could say, well, we have a government that's anti-American, we have a public that's anti-American, uh, and there really isn't much we can do for you. So we are your best bet. So I see more continuity in U.S. foreign policy for whatever that policy—that's not clear what that is—as uh, we know, with Donald Trump, policies change on a tweet-to-tweet
0: basis. Is it—is it? Is it uh, would it be correct to say that China would like it if Imran Khan won, and then Pakistan would become closer to China?
2: Well, I don't—I don't think the, Paci- the the Chinese are. Uh, have made it. The Chinese would be happy with anyone in power because they also have very close ties to the ties to the Pakistan military. They also had a very cordial, cooperative relationship with Nawaz Sharif. Uh, it was during his tenure that the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor came into um, um, came into play. And so, I, I do not see a rupture or any kind of radical. Uh, Warming up of China to Pakistan, there, there is a kind of traditional relationship and Pakistan has, the Pakistan military has used the China card uh, in a sense to kind of say, well, we don't need the Americans anymore. We have China on our side. So Imran Khan would probably not make a huge difference to how the Chinese operate in Pakistan. Uh, I think it won't be, it will more continuity than change.
0: And finally, India. Does India have um, – would, they would not like to see Imran Khan. They would rather see Nawaz Sharif's party that has been uh, a little more casual on, on the military there.
2: Yeah. So Nawaz Sharif has kind of uh, made peace with India, um, a main um, component of his, of his politics. Uh, Imran Khan has actually tried to portray Nawaz Sharif, as you said, very soft on in India as an agent of India – Uh, his party is campaigning on this notion that if you vote for Nawaz Sharif, you're voting for India, I am the the, the politician who's going to protect us. I am the man who stands behind the Pakistani army. So it's unclear. I think the the Indian government or uh, the establishment in New Delhi's realized that no matter who's in power in Pakistan, civilians, uh, what matters is the military. And so as long as the military's in control, foreign policy, there's really little change uh, they foresee, um, regardless of who becomes the prime minister. But yes, Nawaz Sharif has tried to kind of redirect foreign policy uh, towards India by kind of making uh, friendly gestures, trying to start to initiate a dialogue, which is partly why he's in jail today, because he's challenged the military's uh, foreign policy uh, towards India.
0: Akil Shah is assistant professor in South Asian studies at the University of Oklahoma. He's author of the book, The Army and Democracy Military Politics in Pakistan. Thanks for joining us and talking about the elections in Pakistan tomorrow.
2: Thank you, Jerome, for inviting me. Thank you. Bye.
0: Coming up after the break, we'll continue this week's series, A World Without, and we'll find out about the shortage in construction sand. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is worldview on wbez i 'm Jerome McDonnell This week on worldview we present a series a world without we 're discussing how close we are to losing important elements in our lives like coffee or even cemetery space yesterday yesterday we talked about the possibilities of losing out on topsoil and water today we 're going to talk about the global sand shortage. Sand makes the concrete that forms our roads, the glass in our windows, and it's even helped running our cell phones. To discuss the situation with sand, let's revisit a conversation I had with Jody Brandt, professor of human environment systems at Boise State University. She co-authored the articles, A Looming Tragedy of the Sand Commons in the Journal Science?, and the world is facing a global sand crisis in the conversation. Jody Brant breaks down what it seems to be an unlikely shortage.
3: Sand is something we think of as infinitely plentiful, and in some ways it is. There are deserts full of sand, but the things that we use sand the most for really require very special types of sand. And it's those special types of sand that we're demanding more and more as the years go on that are especially limited.
0: I was trying to think of other words for sand. Construction sand, quartz sand, how do you categorize it?
3: Well, one of the main uses we have for sand is for construction. And in particular, construction sand, uh, desert sand is not appropriate for construction sand because The type of sand that's best for construction has a certain angularity that allows it to kind of stick together really good and like concrete and asphalt and so desert sand which has been eroded for hundreds of thousands or millions of years by the wind is much too smooth it just doesn't really stick together very good the best types of sands for construction are actually like sand that has been created by water erosion so if you have a mountaintop and it rains a lot And, you know, the rocks break down and they tumble down through the rivers and they become sand. You know, so this is a process that is not that old. It doesn't take that long as desert sand would, but it gives it that certain angularity that allows it to stick really good together for construction.
0: So a lot of times sand mining occurs in places at the bottom of a mountain or something where you you would think there would be a forest. I watched a documentary about a forest being eliminated in Germany because the sand was underneath it and they wanted the sand really bad.
3: That's right. So somebody there, you know, they had a double harvest. They harvested the forest. First, and that was used for construction or to build houses or fences or whatever, but then we don't think that also underneath there there's this really valuable resource, which is sand, so yeah, absolutely. The best sources for construction sand would be like in a river delta or like a floodplain, for example, another really popular place to find construction sand are like beaches, um so this is sand that has been created and shaped by wave energy again. This is the perfect type of sand for construction, but when, if you can imagine, if you take huge beach areas away, this has impacts on the ecology of that place. It has impacts on the ability of that beach to be resilient to a hurricane or other or big wave action. So yeah, these very places where we're mining sand, it has the perfect sand. They're, they're also places that humans like to use for agriculture or fisheries or to go to the beach.
0: And the demand for sand and, and this particular high-quality sand that you can do stuff with is going up a lot. I read a statistic 5% a year. That would lead to a doubling of the amount of sand we use really fast.
3: Oh, yeah. So if you can imagine how quickly the world cities are growing and um, how countries like China and Asia, their populations are growing, they're building roads, they're building buildings like glass. Glass is the main ingredient in glass and buildings and roads and all of that is sand. So if you can imagine worldwide how quickly our cities are growing and then think of all of the sand that is required to build those construction materials, the rate of sand extraction and global sand trade has skyrocketed in recent years. And all of the projections of population and thus urban growth into the future would indicate that increasing demand for sand is not going to lessen anytime soon.
0: I'm talking with Jody Brandt about the global sand crisis and the looming tragedy of the Sand Commons. What is going on out there? I understand countries are shutting down. Sand exports, countries are Going out into islands and just taking all the sand away. Uh, there seems to be some weird things going on.
3: Yes. So, one of the big problems with sand is, you know, if you think of forests, we all recognize as a global community that forests are really important. They provide habitat for biodiversity, they suck up carbon. And so, more and more, we have these global governance systems. You know, we in The u.s. realized that we're a part of the deforestation problem in the amazon and so we have this global forest governance system that is arising to deal with this collective problem sand on the other hand it's much more fragmented so We don't have any initiative at all to think about sand as a global problem. And so what will happen is if sand mining is happening in a certain place and that's causing environmental problems or health problems, then that particular place, that state or that province, they might say, okay, no sand mining is allowed here anymore. But we still have that demand for that sand. so what simply happens is that the supply is displaced to a place that doesn't have those regulations or doesn't have those problems yet. And so what we really need to do is think about not just you know making uh, regulations in California or making regulations for a particular island, but we really need as a global community to think about this as a global problem and have a global governance system.
0: It sounds like it leads to some peculiar things. It's in Southeast Asia. It looks like almost every country has banned sand export from their country, and in a place like Singapore, out there with uh, just a little place but does a lot of construction, they don't have any sand, and they're scramble. They scramble for sand.
3: That's exactly right. And sometimes sand is so valuable um, for these places that desperately need sand that even though they put regulations in place that there can crop up like sand mafias, so illegal trade in sand, because there's just so much money from the high demand. There's so much money in it that just as any uh, illicit or illegal or regulated substance, you know, people will mine sand illegally and sell that illegally. And so one particular example is in India, where you have actual sand mafias that are very powerful. They have lots of money. Um, You know, there's corruption and bribing the politicians to allow those activities to continue happening. So, yeah, just like any other extremely valuable um, resource or substance, you know, in, in some places, sand is so valuable that these sorts of things do happen.
0: Do governments ever do anything about this other than, like, ban sand exports?
3: So far, the main approach to it has been to ban mining in the place where it's having a negative impact. To my knowledge, there hasn't been other types of more integrated systems or thinking about how one might address that other than having local regulations in place.
0: Is this something that requires a UN kind of solution?
3: Yes, that's the kind of level that action is needed at, really. These global institutions like the UN, these are the ones that initiate international agreements about forests or about water or any other um, limited but important natural resource. And so the global level is really where some action needs to happen.
0: How long before we run out of sand? Is it possible to know?
3: Well, that's one uh, thing we outline in our article, that um, although there has been documentaries made about sand and, and some people know about it from a scientific perspective, we really haven't paid enough attention to it. For example, we don't have any global inventory of suitable sand for construction or for fracking, or for all of the things that we use sand for. We certainly have a global inventory of forests. We have a global inventory of freshwater sources. You know, all of these other important natural resources, science has been done to kind of inventory how much we have and where those resources are. For sand, on the other hand, there hasn't been any progress made. Some locally, there might be local inventories, but Uh, We really don't know how scarce each of the different types of important sand are and where those deposits are.
0: Are there things that we use sand for now that we could be using something else?
3: Yeah, that's a really great question. I would say construction, we have other materials that we can use for construction, whether that be wood or straw bale houses, those sort of things. So we do have some other materials that could replace sand for some things. The bigger problem is that our construction industry, for example, is just really set up to construct with concrete and the, the things, the types of materials that sand goes into. Um, now, there's other types of things that we use a lot of sand for increasingly. One of them is fracking. And that requires a different type of sand. So that requires what we would say a really clean type of sand that desert sand or beach sand wouldn't be appropriate. You really need sand that was deposited many years ago and then pressed and really compressed in the ground over many, many years and is very clean silica sand. So those sorts of things, we don't really have any alternatives available for some of those uses.
0: You know, I was watching this documentary about the sand shortage and the woman thought, I will stop using glass bottles and this will contribute to uh, helping out with the sand shortage. Is there some kind of uh, consumer solution or consumer help that would uh, at least raise awareness?
3: Yeah, that's a really great question. So when we think about forests, you know, at the consumer level, what one could do is sustainably produce timber, for example, and that's the way that the consumer could have a say. But that system of sustainable management of forests is something that has happened at the international level. And since the international level hasn't acted on sand to try to set up any sort of incentive-based or regulatory structures for sand, there isn't really that type of system set up where consumers can say, you know, I'm going to only buy um, soda pop in recycled bottles.
0: Is there a, a way we could put a price on sand and make it more expensive and then we would use it more wisely?
3: Well, we live mostly in a free market economy. So any regulations that kind of artificially raise the value of a good or an item is not usually very popular. But really, uh, one thing is that sand for someone who is extracting it is quite cheap because it's usually taken from these what we call commons areas, which are riverbeds or, again, like right off of the beach in an ocean shore. So these are things that aren't private property. And so the cost that is incurred by extracting them is just simply the cost of extraction and transporting. They don't actually have to pay for that sand. So relative to other things, like if we wanted to say we'll only build houses out of straw bales, you know, straw bales, straw has to be grown on land that is owned by someone, so there's a cost for that actual straw. Whereas sand, there's usually actually not a cost for that material. It's just the extraction and the transport. So I guess what I'm saying is that it's kind of a long time in the future until, based on market principles, the value of sand would increase to a level where we're willing to conserve it more.
0: Do people have a reaction when you talk about a sand crisis to them? Uh, you know, it's kind of a surprising thing. Uh, is there some kind of awareness thing that has to go on?
3: Definitely, there's an awareness that needs to occur. One of the fun things about working on this topic is that people are so surprised. You know, the first comment I always get is, what, we have deserts and deserts full of sand. And then once you explain it to them, it makes a lot of sense to people. So I think it's not hard for people to understand and then appreciate, but it's just so counterintuitive because we have these visions of deserts full of sand that some level of getting out the word or some level of public awareness is necessary to even get people to pay attention to it.
0: Is there a bad guy out there in the sand world is it construction companies? Is it uh, the frackers? Is it mining? Is I don't know. Who does the mining?
3: Mining can be anyone from someone who has the capital to get a huge ship and go troll along the shore and, you know, dig up the sand from these offshore areas. So you could have a corporation that has that kind of money to invest in that sort of machine. But there's also just guys with wheelbarrows. On some beaches on some you know very poor countries, and their job all day is to be on a beach and fill up the wheelbarrow with sand and then wheel that over to a pile and dump it out and You know there might be a hundred guys working there, and they're getting paid by the the barrel full um or the wheelbarrow full to for that sand. So I don't see that there's any one particular bad guy, and um, it really is a, a, a big problem. It's n- there's no silver bullet solution to it. It's more um, addressing it at, the, at like the supply side or the demand side, really, rather than the supply side.
0: Is the sand business primarily regional? That I mean, of all the things I can think of that I would not want to ship to the other side of the planet, I think sand would be one of them. It just strikes me as really heavy and expensive to fill a boat full of, uh, but I don't, I don't know.
3: Well, again, you don't have to pay for the cost of sand, so that frees you up a little bit in terms of the shipping. Um, and you can put a lot of... A lot of sand mining is done. You have you have a huge barge and it has this shovel going out of the bottom and it it's going along the sh- the, the edge of the beach and it's picking up in a big shovel and then just dumping it in the back of the boat and then you just could um, take that boat um, to another country. But yes, in, in fact, you know, if there's sand locally available, then that's going to be the most Desired and the cheapest way to do it. But more and more, especially where there's big cities and all of the local sand has been depleted. And so, for example, Australia has huge deposits of sand that are frequently traded. There's a big trade between Australia and um, Southeast Asian. Countries or islands that need that sand. So basically, people, yes, will go as close as they can to get the sand that they need, but more and more often it becomes regional and international trade.
0: That was Jody Brandt, a professor of human environment systems at Boise State University. She co authored the articles A Looming Tragedy of the Sand Commons in the journal Science and The World is Facing a Global Sand Crisis in the Conversation. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll continue our series, A World Without, where we talk about shortages from different places, and we'll talk about how our culture can deal with a lack of cemetery space. That's tomorrow on Worldview. We'll also have a conversation with Catalina Maria Johnson on Global Notes, our music segment, and she's just returned from Sunfest, a global music festival in London, Ontario, and we'll get some music from that. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia-Blanco and Shazmin Hussein for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
3: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more